All right. So first Timothy chapter three, verse eight. So we've been looking at overseers and we looked at overseers across all of Scripture and looked at well, what is an overseer? How does that relate to an elder? How does it relate to a pastor or shepherd? And we saw that it's all the same thing, that they all describe the same office and the different names give us different facets of the office, so to speak. So then we looked at the qualifications said, OK, well, what should an overseer, what qualifies someone to be able to carry out the functions of that office? And what should that person be doing? And we looked at how almost all of those qualifications describe Christians in general. We shouldn't look at an overseer and say, oh, well, there's this higher degree of holiness. Or there's this higher degree, this different expectation for them in regards to holiness. That's not the case. So we looked through all those very in-depth. Now we're moving on to 1 Timothy chapter 3 at this second church office. Your scriptures may title this paragraph here, Qualifications for Deacons. I'm going to read verse 8, and I'm going to pray for our time, and we'll dive in. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. It says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Let's pray. Father, would you please open up your word to us. Give us depth of understanding and insight. Use your word to pierce our hearts so that we might be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So just like with overseers, I want to take this first week kind of making some observations across all of the New Testament regarding deacons. We're not going to spend near as much time here in deacons as we did with overseers because there is a lot of overlap in some of these qualifications. So we're probably going to spend maybe just two or three weeks looking at deacons, working through this text. And so first I want to look across Scripture and say, what does the Bible or the New Testament give us concerning deacons? And there's two difficulties here in fleshing it out for deacons versus fleshing it out for pastors. Number one, the role of deacon is not as prominent in Scripture as the role of pastor, elder, or overseer. You don't see it near as much. So it's hard to kind of get a good general view of it. We turn to a lot of different places to look at pastors, but we don't have that option for this office. Second difficulty is that for the office of pastor, there were at least three different words that we looked at for that office. But for deacon, it's just this one root word for deacon, and it's used to refer to other things also. In fact, it usually is. So it's hard to pinpoint when they're talking about the office of deacon and when they're not. And we'll look at that in just a, in just a minute. So what I want to do right now is just take a look at what we do have and to maybe help clarify some misunderstandings. So the word for deacon, the noun version, diakonos, and the verb version, diakoneo, are very similar. They have this root where we get the word deacon. It's diakon. So deacon, that's where we get that from. And the definition of this word is deacon, duh, but also minister, servant, one who aids or helps, attendant, waiter. Deacon can be translated all these different ways. And the verb form similarly is to minister, to serve, to attend, or to wait upon. So the real question is, how many times in Scripture do we see this word servant or someone who serves? How many times is it referring to the office of deacon? And each time 
to be able to figure this out, you have to look at the word and you have to look at everything around it and say, okay, is this talking about the office? You have to look at the context. And when I went through and did this, by my calculation, there are three. Two of them are in this paragraph. So there's only one time outside of this paragraph in the New Testament we see this word diakonos, and it's referring to the office of deacon. And it's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read this to you. It's going to be profound. It's going to knock you off your feet. Listen to this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. <laughs> it. It doesn't tell us anything about the office. Here's what it tells us. It's an office with overseers. To the saints in Philippi and the overseers and deacons, they're mentioned together. But then he just gives a greeting. That's it. There's a couple more times you may be thinking, well, I've seen deacon more than three times in Scripture. Okay, that's fair. So I want to address these real quick. You might see this in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 10. I'll go ahead and direct your attention there. In the ESV, it says this. Talking about deacons. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. There's that word. We may look at that and say, well, look, there's the word deacon. Why didn't you include that? That, and it's the same thing in verse 13. Verse 13. Those who serve well as deacons. That word is not the noun version of deacon. It's not those who serve as deacons. It's one word. It's the verb form deacon. That's a verb. It's not a noun there. So it's something that they do. Those who serve as deacons, that's one word. Those who serve well as deacons, that's one word there. Okay. The other instance you might see this is in Romans chapter 16. This is very common, especially when talking about um, the male versus female role in deaconship. In verse uh, 1 of Romans 16, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. In the ESV, it says a servant of the church at Sincre. But your translation, depending on which one you have, may say a deaconess of the church. Okay, so you look at that and say, oh, well, well there it is. I don't think... That this is talking about the office. I think the ESV has translated this right. Because the context around this doesn't give us any reason to interpret this as the office of deacon. I think servant is what it's talking about. Well, Garrett, why do you say that? I'm going to give you some other examples of the same thing. Romans 13.4 uses this word and translates it as servant. It says, talking about the governing authorities, for he is God's servant, deacon. For your good. It's talking about a worldly governing authority. So if he uses it there and he's not talking about deacon, we shouldn't look at Phoebe and say, oh, deaconess. That's, that's, that's what that is. No, not necessarily. Okay. Another example in John chapter 2, the same word is used to refer to the servants at the wedding where Jesus turned the water into wine. Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. If you look at the language, it says she turns to the deacons and says... But they weren't deacons. It wasn't an office. They were servants. One more example here is in Ephesians chapter 3 and in chapter 6. There's this word translated minister. First referring to Paul, who isn't a deacon. 
and then referring to Tychicus, who is one of Paul's helpers. So out of 29 times that we see this word, diakonos, in Scripture, every time but three, it's translated something other than deacon. It's translated servant. It's translated minister. And then three times you get deacon. So all of this to say... It's really hard to get a good broad scope of what a deacon is when it comes to the office of the church. We have the introduction in Philippians and the two references in 1 Timothy. So for the remainder of our time, I actually want to turn your attention to the book of Acts chapter 6. If you can turn over there for me, we're going to spend the rest of our time in in this chapter of Scripture. Acts chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Now remember, we're talking about deacons. I want you to listen very carefully to this passage and see if you notice what I notice. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, And of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, after I read through that passage, what is absent in that passage? What's absent? What's not there? The word deacon. Or the word servant or minister. That word is not in the passage. Well, then, Garrett, why did you bring us this passage? Just a waste of time. Most scholars and commentators would say this is the beginning of the office of deacon. And I agree with them. I think this is the office of deacon in view here. The word is not here, but I think the office is. And I'm going to explain why. There's some disagreement here. Some people would disagree. That's okay. This shouldn't be a divisive issue. But here's why I think the office of deacon is in view. Number one, if you look at this passage, specific men are chosen to serve the church and are recorded by name. Okay, So the church isn't instructed generally, hey, something is happening wrong in the church. Y'all need to just stop being so selfish and humble yourselves and just make sure everyone's taken care of. He doesn't say that. Rather, they say, okay, 
this is important. We need to hand select men. And they record their names in Scripture. We don't see the names of the Ephesian elders, but we see the names of these men, these godly men chosen for this task. So specific men are chosen to serve the church and are recorded by name. I think it's referring to an office. Number two, there are qualifications listed for the chosen men, and they're high qualifications. They're to have a good reputation. They're to be full of the Spirit. They're to be full of wisdom. This isn't just to be some ordinary guy who, hey, you know, who's willing? Well, I guess I'll do it. Okay, you. Yeah, let's go. No. There were qualifications for this, and they are hard qualifications. Most of us, most men probably, would just be satisfied with one of those things. But they were expected to have all three. Number three, why is this an office? These men worked in conjunction with those who preach the word of God in order to take care of the church. So just like in Philippians, we see Paul writing to the Philippian church, and he mentions the overseers, the preachers, the pastors, and the deacons. It's a partnership. In 1 Timothy, we have the qualifications for overseer, qualifications for deacons. So now we see here in Acts chapter 6, you have the apostles and the elders preaching, the pastors preaching, And then the deacon role comes alongside and serves so that that ministry might increase. Because of their job, the ministry of the word would continue to move forward at full strength. In fact, their job was actually to make sure that the preachers could devote as much time as possible to the preparation and ministry of the word and prayer. It's like they said, hey, this is the most important thing, but this is still important. So you don't worry about this. We will serve. You preach the word and pray. Now, this isn't an excuse. Some pastors use this as an excuse to not serve their congregation, and that's sinful. It's not what this is. But the point is it's a partnership with the pastors of the church. Number four, the whole church is asked to appoint these men. This is an election, and an election implies an office. Think about when our country gathers together. We want to gather together as a country, and we want to select one man to fill a certain office in our country, the presidency. That's an election. You elect someone to an office. They summoned the full number of the disciples in verse 2. The 12 summoned the full number. The whole church came together, and they said, here's the problem, so here's what we're going to do. We need to select certain type of men. So you all look amongst yourselves. And find these men, and let's lift them up for this office. Number five, why is is it talking about the office here? These candidates were set aside by being brought before the apostles to be prayed over by the laying on of hands. The word we have for this, this implies ordination. That is the setting aside of someone for a task. When I went into ministry, I was ordained. I remember I was at Cypress Baptist, and they had a row of chairs up at the front. And I came up. I'd already gone through an interview process, answered theology questions, all those things. Came up and sat down in this chair. And these other men in the church who had already been ordained themselves, they came by and they walked behind each candidate that was getting ordained for their respective ministries. And they got down and they placed their hands on me and had my eyes closed. And each one got down right in my ear and prayed for me that I would be set apart for gospel ministry. That's a serious thing. 
That's what we see here with these men. They're not going out to preach the word. They're going out to, in this passage, just wait tables. But they were being ordained for this. I think this points past just some random men serving to an office. We saw the same thing when Paul and Barnabas started their ministry. They were set apart this way. Number six. Why is this an office? This episode, if you look at this passage, marks a significant stage in the growth of the early church. I want you to back up to chapter 5, verse 42. Very last verse in chapter 5. And look what it says. It says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Then it jumps in chapter 6. Now in these days, so they're starting this new section here. We're talking about the growth of the church. They're not going to be stopped. But now there's a situation. This dispute arises. What are we going to do? The number of the disciples in verse 1 is increasing. Okay, The church is getting larger. And now because of this, there's an administrative problem in the church. Surely y'all have felt those growth pangs here before. As the church grows, different administrative tasks need to be handled. So what does the church do? They say, okay, we're going to set aside some men who can help us with this. So they set aside these men, and when you get to the very end in verse 7, what's the result of their structuring the church this way? Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So as the church is growing, this office became necessary. So we see it birthed here. That's why you don't have it referred to, I think, by name. So for these reasons, even though the word deacon doesn't appear here, I think that's what we see forming in the early church. And if that's true, what does all of this tell us about the office of deacon? This is... This is the main meat of tonight. Number one, what does this tell us about the office of deacon? A deacon is a servant. That's literally what the word means. Like a pastor is a shepherd. Why? Why? Because that's what that word means. Pastor means shepherd. Deacon is a servant. Just the word shepherd tells us the pastor should shepherd people. So the word servant tells us what a deacon does. He serves. This does not mean the deacon's job is to serve a purpose. A deacon is to serve people. There's a distinction there. A deacon is not just a taskmaster. A deacon exists to serve people in their need in the church so that the word of God can multiply. This should be a given, but unfortunately, this is not a given. There are a lot of churches who have deacons who don't serve. The deacon role is a service role. It's action, something to be done. Many churches elect deacons, but it's not because they are servants. The deacon 
is a role of servanthood. And we'll look at that a little bit more uh, next week as we dive in. Number two, what does all this tell us about the office of deacon? A deacon is distinct from an overseer both in function and qualification. This is really important for us to see because in many churches, the office of deacon begins to function as the office of overseer when those individuals don't necessarily qualify to function in that capacity. Okay, say it a little bit differently. What happens is you have a church, they have deacons, but they begin to operate in such a way that they're called deacons, but they're doing the things that an overseer does. But the problem is the overseer has certain qualifications that are in place to make sure that job is handled correctly. So when you have a deacon filling this overseer role, but they didn't meet this qualification, they met this other qualification. They may be able to handle these tasks perfectly fine, but there's two significant problems. Number one, it's not biblical. It's not what the Bible says. Number two, on the surface, things may work out well. But imagine this situation. Imagine someone who isn't the pastoral type. They don't meet that qualification. They do meet the qualification of deacon, but not of overseer. And a conflict arises in the church, and it's a very sensitive issue. So this person who's not pastoral says, well, I can handle this real quick. We all know how this story ends. Not well. It's really important that these two offices remain distinct offices in the church. These qualifications exist to ensure that the functions are carried out properly. And when it's not carried out in this way, the church will suffer for it. It's not how it's intended to function. So the deacon is a servant role, and the deacon is not a role of oversight or rulership. And we're going to unpack this more as we continue to dive into this role in 1 Timothy. Number three, what does all of this in Acts tell us about the office of deacon? The office of deacon is a spiritually qualified office more than it's a pragmatically qualified office. If you look in Acts, and he mentions the type of men they should find, verse 3, what are the things you see? They need to have a good reputation. They need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be full of wisdom. What don't you see? They need to have waiting experience. They need to have business experience. They need to know how to manage well. We're going to see that in 1 Timothy, but you don't see it here. What's the emphasis here? The emphasis here is on the spiritual condition of these men. We can find a ton of people that know all of that stuff. That's not the most important thing. All of those things can be taught. Character is very hard to teach. 
The ability to do things is easy. Hit the buttons in this order. And they just study and learn to do it. But a heart of godliness that desires to serve people cannot be so easily taught. That's why we see this emphasis here. The office of deacon is a spiritually qualified office more than it's a pragmatically qualified office. I've seen a lot of churches here, too, that base their decision on a candidate's work experience or prominence in the community or popularity than their godliness. I've seen it a lot. Men that they really know how to run a tight ship. We should get them as a deacon. That is the last thing I care about when I'm electing a deacon. First thing I care about is, does this man love the Lord? Is he full of the Spirit? Is he full of wisdom? Does he have a good reputation? That's the important thing. That other stuff will come together. If you have to campaign for a candidate for the office of deacon, that is actually a strike against that candidate. If they meet the qualifications of having a good reputation, being full of the spirit, being full of wisdom, you won't be able to stop them being elected by the church to serve that role. The church is instantly going to come to mind. Oh, there's no doubt. That guy right there. He's it. He's full of the spirit, full of wisdom. Good record. That's the man. If you have to campaign for someone, do they have a good reputation? Are they really so full of the Spirit? The office of deacon is more spiritually qualified than it is pragmatically qualified. Number four. What does all this teach us about the office? The office of deacon should be approached with reverence and seriousness. If you look here in verse 6, they name all the men by name in verse 5. Then in verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. He could have just said, the apostles could have just said, hey, find the men and tell them to do the task. And then they would have stepped back and then let the committees or however they did it do their thing. But they didn't. They said, select these men and then bring them to us. So they selected the men. They brought them to them and they set them down. And the apostles went to them and placed their hands on them and prayed over them for this task. This is a big deal. This isn't a vote and move on type of thing. It's better for a church... To have no official deacons than for the church to have unqualified, unspiritual, uninvested, uninterested deacons. The role is too serious to be treated so lightly. And I will stand by that statement. It would be better for a church to have no deacons than to have deacons who are not deacons. It's a serious issue. More can be said about the office, but I'm going to end with one more observation for tonight. The rest of our observations will be coming out of 1 Timothy 3. 
And this one isn't in Acts, but we'll see where it is in Scripture here in just a moment. Number five, the last point here, the model for a deacon is the chief deacon, Jesus Christ. Romans 15, 8 through 9 says this. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. The language literally is Christ has become a deacon, diakonos, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Christ is our servant. When the disciples came in at the Last Supper, he was the one that took his towel off and got down and served as an example for us. Luke 22, verses 25 through 27, says this. This is Jesus talking. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader... As one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus is talking about someone who's a leader. And the Gentile leaders lead by lording it over people. Putting the pressure on them. Letting them know who's boss. I'm in charge, and it's going to go my way, or you can get out. That's how the Gentiles lead. Not so with you. The greatest among you will be the youngest among you. The greatest among you will be the least among you. Who's greater, the one that eats at the table or the one who serves the food to the people at the table? Obviously the one who eats at the table. Then he says, what am I doing? I'm not eating at the table. I'm serving. This is what you ought to do. Jesus, the one who is greater, did not come down so that someone else could deacon him. He came so that he could deacon someone else. How does he do this? Last passage here is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. A great chapter of Scripture. Says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to how it describes Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of Jesus's humility, he was exalted. And in the same way, the office of deacon is an office of humility and servanthood. But the person who serves in that office, there is an exaltation for that. We'll see that in 1 Timothy. They receive a good name for themselves because they are in the office of deacon. You see the danger here for pride. This is a serious office. It's an office of humility and servanthood. And for us to fulfill that well, we should serve like Jesus does. Give yourself for the sake of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Consider others more significant than yourself. Look to the interests of others. That man is a deacon. But it's also what we're expected to do as Christians. The deacons of the church better surely be like that. But we ought to as well. May we all serve one another as Christ has served us. I'm going to close this out in prayer. Allowing Philippians 2, 1 through 5 to guide our time in prayer. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, to serve a people like us. We are so utterly unworthy of that. You are so utterly worthy of our service. But you turned that table and you stepped down off of your throne, taking the form of a servant of a man being born in our likeness that you might take upon yourself the wrath against our sin that we deserved. Thank you for giving us this life in Christ. Father, would you unify us as a church by giving us all the mind of a servant? Would you grant for us to be filled with a spirit of humility? Would you strip away our selfishness, anything within us that causes us to seek what we want at the expense of what others desire? Would you take away that groaning inside of us that seeks to be satisfied by what we desire? Would you grant us to be a humble people like your son? Would you help us to imitate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Father, I lift up the deacons in our church right now who serve. I thank you for them, for their service to this church. I ask that you would magnify these qualities that we've looked at and that we will continue to look at 
as we move forward in 1 Timothy. I pray that you would magnify these qualities in our men. That you would fill them with your spirit. That you would fill them with wisdom. That you would train them in the ways of godliness. That they might have a good reputation. Being seen as humble servants who love people and want to serve people. God, we love you. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.